on MacGyver, last time on MacGyver, tonight on MacGyver, next time on MacGyver, MacGyver. Christmas on BBC One. In Last of the Summer Wine, Seymour, Compo and Clegg and the problems of public speaking. All you have to do is handle the loud speaking. I'm not doing it! I'm not doing it. Off you go then, across the fields. Do you mean they're going to walk in these? Well, that's the whole idea. A public address system that'll really get to the people. It can follow them if it has to. Last of the Summer Wine, tonight at 7.15 on BBC One. Hello. Hello. I'm Andrew. I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 33 of Round the Archives. Well, lots to do, so mm -hmm. let's get a shift on. Okay. First of all, we are very pleased to welcome Mr. Tim Worthington. Yes. Who's, who's going to take a trip with us to... Chigley. Hello, Lisa. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Tim. Hello, Tim. Hello. We've got Tim Worthington on the other end of a connection, haven't we? We have. So, Tim Worthington, what are you up to and where can we find it? <laughs> well, as will be obvious from that intro, I've been doing recently a lot of editions of my podcast, Looks Unfamiliar, which yourselves were on a while back and you were absolutely brilliant on. There's quite a few recorded waiting to come out. One might be out by the time that this appears. Quite an exciting one. I'm not saying who that is yet. It'll be some of the use of great interest of listeners to this programme, though. I'm also working away at various pieces on my website, which is timworthington.org, and exclusive news for you here, I'm literally putting the finishing touches to a book about Radio 3 comedy, which has been in the works for a number of years now. I think I've finally got everything, and it should be out soon. Excellent. Well, that's another book for our shelves, then. Yeah. <laughs> Or the floor. Yeah, or the floor or wherever. It... <laughs> yeah. I'd be honoured to be on the pile on the floor, frankly. But I have in my hand one of your other books. So there's a link. Uh, the, Cam the Camberwick Green Procrastination Society, in which you wrote a lovely article about the final episode of Chigley. I did, yes, yeah. So we thought we'd like to talk about that very episode tonight. So, tell us about this episode, Tim. Well, this is of particular interest to me because anyone who knows me or even knows about me will know how obsessed I am with Campbell Green, Trumpton and Chigley but I've always had a real kind of soft spot for Chigley because it is the forgotten one in a lot of ways I mean Gordon Murray did other series less well remembered but it's the one that for a number of reasons it didn't quite take off at the time there wasn't very much Titan merchandise it wasn't repeated as much as the others even though weirdly it was the last one of them to actually be shown regularly by the BBC and people just don't remember it as much and yet it's got that real kind of end of the 60s feel to it 
in the I don't mean you know the Harry Farthing and Winnie were going out you know of fermenting revolution on the streets you know like uh, singing street fighting man and so on but it has got that kind of thank you and good night feel like a lot of things in 1969 did I mean I think primarily the end of the war games uh, you know which is literally not just Patrick Troughton spinning away into the distance but the whole of black and white Doctor Who the whole way of making that and Chickley kind of ties in with that to me because it's the end of something that had been a very big television phenomenon in the 60s and it's the absolute line drawn under it because you say in the book that people look sort of get them mixed up in their heads as to as to sort of which series is which and because because mm-hmm. chigley always starts somewhere else doesn't it and this one this one we're starting in trumpton town square aren't we with mr antonio flogging his ice creams that's right, and it struck me re-watching it that there is the episode of Trumpton where Mr. Antonio parks in front of Mrs. Cobbett, the flower seller, and they have to come to a, sort of an uneasy truce about who does what. Well, they've obviously worked it out by now because they're positioned adjacent to each other and p- both picking up the passing trade. So, well, I, I like I like his truck. It's quite colourful, except I've noticed it's got an evil face on the front. It's... <laughs> I, mean, I know you were scared of the clown, weren't you? Uh, uh... But the, this truck looked like it's up to no good to me, and I'm also worried. I'm also worried about the ground clearance on it because the, the bottom of it's really low. So I was imagining if they ever introduced like speed humps into Trumpton, <laughs> he'd just get marooned on top of one. Here comes a policeman, a sleeping policeman. Speed hump number. Uh, I can't make that work. <laughs> but it, you've got ices sort of letrosetted on the side of the. Ices. Uh, no ices, ices. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a whole different series. Uh, letrosetted on the side of his of his truck, and I notice it's the same font used in, in the Man from Uncle. It is. It's it's the same font as well. Like that, every shop in the seventies that had been around in the sixties had, and it would just generically say butchers or grocers. You know, it, don't, nobody with an actual name for their shop used that font. It was just the generic shops. You know, baker. Well, going back to our early sort of pre-podcasting days, Lisa and I used to work on a a tape zine done by our friend Nick, who you hear on on our podcast these days, Ray Fay's Shift, and he used that same font, so it's got a whole different set of connotations for us. <laughs> but anyway, he goes off heading on his way about three miles an hour, because um, he's heading for Winkstead Hall, isn't he? Mm. Did you notice his coat's changed, by the way? His what? His coat? His is. His coat has changed, because in Trump, he's got that lovely, crisp, white kind of lab coat, like he's a member of AMM, the 60s free jazz outfit. But in this one, it's all grimy and rough and mucky. It, either he's fallen on hard times, or he's fallen in with some hippies, or just Gordon Murray forgot to put that puppet away properly, and it's just gathering dust in the corner. You know, oh, oh, we need this one. Uh, it's got a bit funny coloured. What what I'm concerned about is his ice lollies because they're all exposed to the elements. So if if, if he's like driving through a cloud of midges or something like that, they're going to just get stuck to the stuck to the lollies. It's not very hygienic. Um, but we arrive at Winkstead Hall and he's got a tin of ice cream for Bracket, which is the size of an oil tanker. How are they going to eat that much ice cream? The two of them. Even if they get Mr. Bilton some, it's, you know, that's a tall order. Yes, Mr. Bilton turns up and he wants a peppermint one for some reason. Yes. 
I, I, I don't, I've I, never had peppermint You've never cream. had peppermint ice cream? There's no peppermint ice cream. No, they've, they've made that up. Unless it was some 60s fad that, you know, is lost to time. Nobody had the peppermint ice cream, ever. But Mr. Bilton's complaining about his rheumatics. And he goes off to, to the area around his greenhouse, where he's got this sort of skanky old wheelbarrow. And behind the wall, I don't know whether you've ever noticed it, there's a tree in the first shot, but later on that tree disappears. Yes! Yeah, it just... I don't know. I mean, there's very few slip-ups in the whole of the three series, but that is that is unforgivable, that one. That is so glaring. I think even as a child I noticed that. Well, the tree's there earlier on. Then Mr Antonio somehow gets talked into mowing the lawn. Yeah, it's like the adventures of Tom Sawyer, isn't it? Where he convinces the other kids to paint the fence. It's exactly like that. I, I don't believe he had rheumatics at all. Just didn't feel like doing it. Well, I, I think he's faking it because Bayleaf in the herbs is often complaining about his back and things <laughs> like that. I think it's just a sort of gardener sort of way of getting out of things. Getting out of things. Um, I am concerned about Mr. Antonio's mowing technique, though. Because if you're like mowing a stately home lawn, you're supposed to do it in stripes, aren't you? But yes, he's, that's he's, true. Yeah. He's, he's all over the place. You know, he's, he's not doing it in straight lines at all. Um, he does one bit of it several times. There's <laughs> no grass left. <laughs> but yes, um, so eventually the, the mowing is achieved. He goes back to see Mr. Bilton. The trees vanished, and now there's, there's a load of bushes behind the behind the wall. I can only assume he took so long to mow the lawn that the bushes have grown in the interim, and uh, and the trees fallen down. Though one of the bushes does actually seem to lurch over slowly in the shot and disappear. So watch out for that one. I don't know whether you've seen that. It's like that bit of Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, the Alan Freeman section with the overgrowing plants. It's Yeah, there is famously... I've never, ever managed to see this myself. I've seen part of the original pilot for Campbell Green, which was shot in black and white, and they later reshot it in colour. But there's the famous story about a bit where Peter the Postman's walking down a lane... And they hadn't realised because they... I don't think they used real leaves on the trees in the scenery, but some material that wasn't suitable. And they slowly wilted under the studio lights and they didn't notice it because it was stop motion. But all these trees are like looming towards him like some lost bit from the Wizard of Oz almost as he makes his way down. I wonder what children thought of that in the 60s. But Mr Bilton um, is still complaining because he wants this sort of motorised barrow thing, doesn't he? But uh, they can't afford it because the roof needs to be repaired. They're hoping for some more visitors and off Mr Antonio goes, heading for the pottery. His ice lollies are still out out in the open and he arrives... (laughs) He arrives uh, at Mr Farthing's and gives Winnie a suspicious-looking yellow lolly. I'm just wondering what the lolly's made out of. It's a very dark yellow, and she spends all the time sniffing it, apparently. So, yeah, it looked like medicine to me. I'll give them that benefit of the doubt. Well, I was, I was thinking darker thoughts, but uh, I'm just, <laughs> just imagine, imagining her nudging her dad. Dad, does this lolly smell of wee? You know? <laughs> but, yeah, Mr Crockett then gets all the gossip, and then later on... One week later, at Winkstead Hall, Mr Brackett gets a phone call. Now, um, Mr Brackett, I have to ask, 
when you were small, did you ever do an impression of him walking up the cor- up, up the corridor? Because I did. We not only did, me and one of my sisters broke the latch on the sideboard in the front room because we had the thing about we thought he was walking with his feet together. So we were like kind of hopping in unison on two feet and we somehow broke the latch on this sideboard, which was a, a downward door. And we didn't say anything about it. We just just left it, and it, it later like because it wasn't repairable for some reason. Uh, probably just because my parents couldn't be bothered. But they used to wedge it shut with torn out pages from the Sunday Times magazine, and of course it would work its way loose. And in the middle of the night, you'd hear this almighty crash that wake everyone up. It was that it had come down. They'd have dinner parties, and one of their friends would be standing in front of it, and it had come down, smacked them on the legs. And we never owned up to it until a couple of years ago. And I blame, I personally blame Mr. Brackett for that. One thing that always sticks in my mind as well from that that sequence is is that the wallpaper, which is a very weird design, and does remember the the sort of black and white lino we used to have in our toilet floor. It was sort of (laughs) black with white, white sort of streaks and patterns on it. And also, they've got framed, like, they're not even pictures, framed tinfoil. It's like, it's like the background when you see, like, Pink Floyd doing CMLE play on top of the pops. It's that, but framed. Yeah, very, very strange sort of decor they go in for at (laughs) Winkstead Hall. We finally meet his lordship, who's got a huge waste paper bin with nothing in it. noticed that <laughs> well, he's got two sheets of paper on his desk so he, he's clearly not inundated with paperwork i could understand <laughs> if he had an in-tray or something but then we get the sort of stock footage of of bessie as we go off to the wharf it's very monkey stock footage as well isn't it it's really battered you can tell where they've spliced it in but again i have to ask the question did we ever see um, a turntable or anything like that that for Bessie because they drive out of the where they keep it go up to the wharf and do they have to reverse all the way up the line again to get back or is there a loop or something like that I don't know because you do see them returning in some episodes you never see it turn round though and the return journey is different so it must be a loop line because uh, years ago was it cult TV magazine sort of tried to do a map of Trumpton Trumpton show they did that's right they did yeah I've just never seen anybody attempt one in recent years because you 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 get various ones that people have done of Warmington on sea but I'd love to see a proper map sort of done of of Tramptonshire at some point well apparently because you know this is based on what I've observed kind of directionally it all lines up but you get weird things like Dr. Mop's house appears in several places, you know, not just in Camberwick Green, but on the road between Camberwick Green and Trumpton. Um, sure, that that's the problem, it's the scenery moving. Is it all a bit Castrovelva then, like there's four surgeries? Yes, yeah. it's recursive. <laughs> <laughs> but off to the wharf we go for a crate, and the crate is sort of balanced precariously in one of the trucks that you sit in. It's not even a proper flatbed sort of truck and it doesn't quite fit because the edge of it's hanging over the the side and I I just wrote that's dangerous and it doesn't fit. (laughs) (laughs) But the six o'clock whistle goes and all the work units come out of the the biscuit factory. Have you ever noticed the drunk one coming out? The very last worker that comes out is staggering all over the place, waving his arms madly. (laughs) So is there is there something in in the Chigley biscuits or alcohol by volume five percent or something like that? Nah, I think they're just 
they've got a stash somewhere and you know it's like that yes minister episode where johnny walker wants you in the conference room except they're just going i'm gonna go and have some whiskey see you lads a delegation of teachers yes indeed (laughs) (laughs) but yeah mr crockett arrives and nearly drives straight into the back cloth which is very very wrinkled I think he needs his brake scene too. Uh, but, but the crate is opened and it's this sort of mini sort of steam engine thing, isn't it? Yes, which somehow powers the motor. That's uh, Sorry, powers the mower. Yeah. Yeah, the motor powering the motor would not be very remarkable. <laughs> but yeah, and Mr. Bilton gets a sort of trailer thing as well. And I love the fact that Mr. Bilton immediately sort of gets on it and drives off. He's had no like... <laughs> training in operating this thing i just imagine almighty crash from the garden wall which has already had at least one accident hasn't it yes there is that episode where it gets knocked down and a workman goes to use a phone box which sadly it looks weirdly tardis like even though it's red (laughs) and then uh, lord belber gets his organ out as usual and, and the russian peasants start to dance and that's that's Chigley. Yeah, and that's the absolute end of it, isn't it? You know, you've got the the captions after it, but that's that's it. That was goodbye to the 60s. I mean, what was the actual date it was on? It was, it was the 29th of December, 1969. So, yeah, this is, as you say, this is very much the 60s coming to an end. But in your book, you make a passing reference to a, a, a possible idea for a another series set at the seaside well now what what, what's this about because i I don't know anything about this gordon murray mentioned it vaguely in an interview once just said i toyed with the idea of a fourth series in a seaside location but it it never came about now i have seen his bbc file there's no submission in there so i do think he literally just toyed with it he thought shall i do it and you know, maybe thought the moments have passed because, you know, believe me, there was a lot of paperwork, particularly about Chigley. It disappeared for a couple of years in the late 70s. And that was due to the fact that I don't want to go too far into this because, you know, obviously it's kind of personal financial stuff. But the rates he was offered for Chigley for the repeats weren't as good as the other two. And there was kind of a period of renegotiation, at which point it was sort of temporarily pulled. And that could be one of the reasons why it's not as well remembered as the other two. I mean, there are plenty of other reasons. You know, like you say, it doesn't have the wrestling opening. It starts in other locations. 50% of the characters in any given episode are from one of the other series. And the other two didn't really have that crossover at all. And yet, weirdly, everyone remembers the train song. And a lot of people say, I remember there being a boat in Trumpton. And no, there wasn't. It wasn't. It was in Chigley. Thank you, Tim. Um, it's been uh, lovely to talk with you about Chigley. It's been an absolute pleasure. You, you wouldn't believe how few opportunities I have to talk about Chigley. It doesn't often come up. You know? <laughs> well, no, indeed. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I will admit, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of all the series, but it do, even in my head, it, it does sort of blur into into one a bit without sort of thinking about it and looking at episode guides and and you know which story actually concerns what so you know i can i can understand sort of less committed people being a a, a bit more confused about it yeah let's face it there aren't many committed people (laughs) i did take chigley out of my tinder bio as one of my interests because it it didn't seem to get many matches so (laughs) <laughs> okay well uh, we'll say thank you for that and uh, thank you very much tim thank you for having me
and thank you to Tim. Yes, thank you, Tim. It was very nice to chat with you. Yes, we mm. finally got him on here. Yay! Because we've been meaning to to do it for ages. To get him yes. to do something for ages, yes. and I'm very glad that we did. So mm-hmm. hopefully we can do something at some point in the future. Yes. Uh, but now, uh, Martin Holmes mm-hmm. normally looks at, at, at shows. He does. For us. But in this case, he's going to have a delve in his own archives. Yes. And have a look at Doctor Who companions, but perhaps mm. not in the way you might expect. Ooh. Here's Martin. Okay, a few days ago, a few days ago, I got myself involved in an online conversation about whether or when the uh, term companion was used in uh, Doctor Who uh, to, re- to refer to <laughs> the companions as opposed to assistant or you know, granddaughter. And uh, one of the things that I sort of, because I pitched in, because, you know, you pitch in, don't you? And I pitched in uh, to mention that the uh, when I joined the Dwyers back in 1977, and I've kind of remained a member for, for 42 years now, uh, one of the uh, earliest uh, volumes I bought, one of the earliest special magazines I bought that they printed, was called the Companion Volume, price 50p, in a lovely buff-coloured cover with the delightful Debbie Watling on the cover. And uh, featuring the Alistair to Zoe of the Doctor's Companions. And now whether this was the first uh, use of the term is is academic, really, because someone pitched in with an article from the Radio Times in 1965, which basically said, you know, that uh, uh, Vicky was the new companion. So the whole argument kind of uh, went a bit aside. But, uh, but what I found was that, that somebody mentioned in the process of this that the companion volume that I mentioned, which we which turned out when I got home to have been printed in 1977, autumn 1977, was available on PDF. And I started thinking, oh, that's interesting, because I've got uh, a stack of uh, different special editions from when I was, from the early days of my membership as a, uh, of, of the Dwyers. And um, I thought, well, maybe they're all available on PDF. Turns out they're not, because of copyright reasons, etc., etc., and writers and what have you but the companion volume is and it's a rather it's rather you know slim volume it basically goes up to leela and and k9 is introduced as, as the new companion in, in the in the uh on the back page but it's a rather lovely thing i mean this uh was it was written by jeremy bentham and some of the artwork the, the artwork the people who used to do this the artwork for Dwyer's were were very talented people they used to use technical pens in ink do ink drawings with dots and one of the the early um, exponents was a guy called drog uh, drog landon i think his name was i can't remember exactly but he, there's a beautiful picture uh, on pay, of susan with the dalek and the other guy was a guy called stuart glazebrook who had a more refined technical style uh, his, his portrait of ian and barbara and azabi and a monoptera on page four is, is again i think a beauty unfortunately the pictures the same pictures that he uses his reference material are the photographs that accompany the articles on Ian and Barbara, but nevertheless, it's a nice piece of artwork. And this, and the interesting thing about these things is, is it to me, it's still the artwork. I mean, a, a whole generation of us sort of grew up buying rotary dot pens to do these drawings based on this kind of style. Some of us never quite achieved the uh, technical skill that these guys had, but 
but the Vicky page has got a beautiful picture of Vicky and Coquillian. Now, one of the things that strikes me about The Rescue is that they are some astonishingly good, clear and beautiful reference photographs from, from The Rescue. You should track them down if you ever get the chance because they, they are really worth seeing. We move on from Vicky and we get to Stephen. She's a picture uh, using the picture of Peter Purvis from the Radio Times special as its reference key. And uh, Because again, at that time, there wasn't that much actual reference material of that era. I mean, there still isn't to a certain extent. Those, a lot of those stories from that year are lost. So, you know, you, you worked with what you got in 1977. And then we get to page 10 and 11, which basically involves Katerina and Sarah Kingdom. And to be frank, for a lot of people, they probably didn't remember who Katerina and Sarah Kingdom were. And this may well be the, the publication that actually is the first one to attempt to make them part of the companions list. I mean, you could argue less, you know, Katerina was in two stories, travelled in the TARDIS, blah, blah, blah. Sarah Kingdom was in, you know, effectively two stories linked together by a Christmas episode, but was in the programme for 12 weeks, both of which count, both of which maybe don't count. It's very different. Then you move on to Dodo in a rather nice photograph, full-page photograph, tabard. And, uh, hey, Dr. Stephen, get a load of these fab pictures, is the quote from the arc that's at the top of the page. These things are always typed. <laughs> this is 1977. We typed. If we did anything like this, and the typing's good. You know, it's it's a lot more accurate than mine ever used to get. We move on to Ben and Polly. And um, a lovely picture by Drog again of, of Ben and Polly with, the, uh, with two types of Cybermen, uh, because they featured in two stories that... that they were in. Lovely picture of um, Ben there, although the cyber hand on his head does tend to look a little bit like a vervoid hand. There's a bit of a flower thing going on there, but again, this is way before the vervoids. We move on to Jamie. Wonderful picture of Jamie kind of climbing up an ice warrior. A screaming ice warrior, if you like. Again, that picture from the Radio Times special, which was, in many ways, the best uh, visual uh, material we had back then. Uh, me foreign, you're the one that's foreign, I'm Scottish, the quote from The Evil of the Daleks. We move on. Victoria, lovely picture by Stu Art of, of Victoria sitting next to a rather exploded-looking Dalek. And Zoe, the lovely Zoe. Again, I, 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 when I was buying these things, the idea of being able to watch Zoe or Victoria or Jamie or, or any of these people at any time was kind of impossible. We just didn't have the chance to do this. Things used to turn up in the early uh, editions of uh, TARDIS magazine, uh, things like backtime quizzes. Now, backtime quizzes were kind of about things like the evil of the Dalek or Tomb of the Cybermen, which some of us had never seen. We, we never thought we ever would. Well, obviously, with Evil of the Daleks, it's unlikely that we ever will. But the stories, you know, the questions about these stories were so detailed and, and, and so precise, and we just, at that time, you never thought you'd ever see them. Next page, 2223, lovely picture of the Brigadier, obviously played by Nicholas Courtney. Sorry, yes. Um, a lovely picture from the Spearhead from Space on one side and a rather nice picture by, by Stuart of the of the brigadier and and the hand of an auton again reference material very very rare back then and then we get the page the men from unit so you get captain mike yates sergeant benton lieutenant sullivan and brigadier alistair gordon leftridge stewart all of which are now considered to be companions lovely full page picture of liz there uh, on the next page i'm not interested i'm just not interested in security work inventing invisible links that sort of thing quote from spearhead from space another nice drawing there and a lovely full page drawing of so the fledgling flies the coop and Joe Grant and Bock and John Pertwee. And then we move on. Now the master, the master makes the cut in this. It's a lovely picture again uh, by uh, Paul Stephen Smith 
of the master, uh, the disfigured master from the Deadly Assassin, with with a mask of Roger Delgado in his hand, uh, being the puppeteer to Ogrons, Sea Devils, and uh, the Guardian uh, from uh, the Doomsday Weapon. Again, lovely picture. In fact, it's the pictures in these things that that still excite me when I when I when I turn the pages. Sarah Jane Smith and Morbius, and although Sarah is wearing a uh, her outfit from Ark in Space in that, Harry called me old girl again, and I'll spit in your eye. The quote for her, lovely photograph uh, again yeah, of um, Elizabeth Sladen there in her in her woolen jerkin from the Time Warrior. We move on another lovely picture, uh, full page picture of uh, Harry Sullivan with a Zygon or. Being a Zygon and uh, and Leela with a, with a great picture uh, again by by Stuart Stuart Glazebrook. I must stop calling me Stuart. Leela and uh, D eighty four, of course, who some people still considered to be a companion. At the end, lovely. Uh, well, I'd say the list of information now. No information available about Adrian Hill. That's interesting. But the companion volume was published by the reference department of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society. Production thanks to Mark Sinclair. Printed by Book Services Litho Limited, South Street Industrial Estate, Whitstable, Kent. And that, as the saying goes, is the forty-page, fifty-p companion volume. Fabulous. Thank you very much to Martin. Yes, thank you, Martin. Well, I joined the Dwarfs in 1984. Okay. So hearing about anything earlier than that mm-hmm. is really interesting for me. Yeah. Because um, all I sort of knew was the TARDIS sort of magazine and mm-hmm. Celestial Toy Room. I didn't know yes. about sort of earlier publications. Oh, so. okay. And you were very late joining the Glass. Yes, it was you? about 1991. Doctor yeah. Who wasn't even on the television at that point. <laughs> I think that's why I joined. But yeah. um, That's yeah, how you met me, though. It was. If I hadn't joined, then I wouldn't be sitting here now. Right. So, so yes. Um, next, what have we got? Oh, yes. The mm. Summer Winos are back. Yes, so, so Bob Fisher. And Andrew T. Smith. Yes, and return mm-hmm. with part two of their chat and they were just about to open an email from Roy Clark so what will Roy say up the courage and wrote him a letter and I think I was at work I was on the radio the following day, or a couple it was only a couple of days after we yeah. sent it I was on the radio and you texted me and said check your email <laughs> <laughs> I can't I'm on the radio just tell me <laughs> yeah because I was in I was in London with work at the time oh, having you? a pretty miserable day and then right. Roy Clark's name shows up in the inbox <laughs> well how did you feel when you were about to open that email <laughs> I can't remember what his subject line was I can't Leave remember give me alone <laughs> it's what we were expecting <laughs> um, no I just, it just brilliant to to hear from him and to hear that he approved <laughs> um he was bemused completely bemused i think but in a uh, nice way i think he was just amazed that anybody would take his work 
as seriously as we had, <laughs> I think, and put the hours and the effort into writing about it uh, that that we had. But I, you say he he approved. He not just approved. He took us out. It was almost like a. It was a coded message, wasn't it? Mm. Can you report a summons to Don, yeah to Doncaster <laughs> railway station, uh, two o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, <laughs> and he took us out. He took us out for the day. We were specifically told not to drive to Doncaster. That's right, <laughs> because no. he was going to get us pissed. He did. He, he specifically said that in his email. Um, get the train and then we can all have a bloody good train. <laughs> <laughs> My God! Roy, Roy is old school. Yes, Roy is yeah. old school booze. <laughs> I, mean, God, I, I, I was desperately trying not to get too drunk because I wanted to remember it all. But uh, the latter stages are definitely a little bit wobbly. He was amazing, wasn't he? He was fantastic, yeah. Um, again, very willing to share share stories because we did an interview for the blog, of course. Um but by the end of it, I can't remember getting home. <laughs> <laughs> he was just so open. I really wasn't expecting that. I was going to say, this guy is, is would have been 86 when we met him, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And he looks 20 years younger than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so welcoming, so open, so generous. He, yeah. did, he hired out a room in his local hotel, hired out a dining room. Um, we had a full... Well, that's because he just didn't want to be seen with us in public. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, entirely understandable. Full four-course meal and drinks arrived all day. And he t- everything we asked, he answered. Mm. He was incredibly honest about all of his work. The hotel... Lisa and Andrew said, do as many plugs as you like. If you go to summerwinos.co.uk... Yeah, I'm amazed it's taken us that long to mention the What's wrong with us today? Um, the, yeah, the, or you can find us on Facebook as well, yeah, on course, Twitter. Yeah. Look, yeah. look for Summer, Summer Winos, we'll be there. Uh, but the interview with Roy Clark is on the website. And so many people have said how, how much they appreciated it. Because he is so open. And he doesn't give interviews, as a rule. I no. rarely see Roy Clark interviewed or quoted anywhere. No, I don't think he's asked often enough, and he should be, yeah. because he's such an important figure in British television, um, who's kind of overlooked, I think possibly because of Summer Wine's ubiquity, and its long- longevity, maybe. His longevity led to mm. some backlash, Yeah. Um, which I think is a, is, is a great shame, because you know he created not one, but- Two that you could definitely see are great sitcoms, Open All Hours, yeah, and and Last of the Summer Wine, mm. and then the stuff that you might not argue are the great sitcoms of British television, but stuff like Keeping Up Appearances. There's still the bloody good sitcoms. Bloody good, and it has a huge <laughs> audience, an international audience yeah. as well. Keeping yeah, Up Appearances does. is beloved by a segment of Americans who watched it on PBS. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it it was nice to. Well, it's, it continues to be nice to give Clark some of his due, I think. Absolutely, yeah. And and, and when we started to do uh, Summer Wine House as a live performance, again, we didn't want to do it without Roy knowing about it and without Roy uh, giving it his blessing. Yeah. And, he, and he did, he absolutely did. Um, and he, he emailed us and said, yeah, en- enjoy it and go for it. And, yeah. and we were so thrilled at that. And again, we wouldn't have done the live stuff, I don't think, without Roy's... No, Blessing no, you couldn't. And, and kind words. Well, you could, but well, you <laughs> we, we wouldn't. Well, I would have felt terrible about it. <laughs> I've been racked with guilt. So, how did the live performances actually come about? Then this was your idea again, wasn't it? Um, well, the the long version is that 
um, when we got to know Jonathan Lindsley, we thought, wouldn't it be great to do something, oh, God, yes. to do a live event with him because yes, the fans are very time. fond of him and yes. he's great with them. Yeah. So we um, staged a happening, we've come to call it, in, in Homeforth. At uh, Sid's Cafe. At Sid's Cafe. Which is we, a working cafe yeah. these days. Hello to Laura that runs Sid's Cafe. <laughs> yeah, the long-suffering Laura who yeah. is very indulgent. Oh, us. she's amazing. And we love she her is. very much. We do. Um, but uh, we, we brought Crusher back to the cafe. Uh, Jonathan hadn't been to Homeforth since he left the show in the 80s. Yeah. Um, and the cafe is quite small, so we made him do it twice. Because, <laughs> um, you know, we like money. Um, <laughs> what are you talking about? We gave it all to him. <laughs> and, um, yeah, for about 60, 70 fans gathered through that day and Jonathan mm. shared his stories and got back into costume which was That was brilliant. amazing he didn't tell anybody he was doing that no, we didn't know he was going to do just that just suddenly over the course of the show bits of costume started to emerge from a case and <laughs> at the end of it he put the white coat on the white overall and Crusher was back it was amazing it was amazing <laughs> so yeah that, that was that was fantastic fun yeah and um, I go to the the Edinburgh Festival every year the Fringe Festival and just a couple of years ago, I was sitting there and I, I can't remember exactly what I was watching, but I remember thinking, we couldn't do worse than this. Was <laughs> <laughs> it something truly really terrible? I don't know. It's something average, I think. <laughs> um, you, thought, you thought we could do better than I, average? I know, so it must have been you know, very average. Um, and uh, there, there was there's a lot of shows in Edinburgh that are about... Um, classic comedy or about nostalgia yeah. and I, it was basically our wheelhouse and I thought there, there is there we'll is... get on that gravy train <laughs> yeah we'll make a fortune <laughs> in Edinburgh that panned out but yeah, uh... more accurately we'll lose a fortune <laughs> in Edinburgh and so we um, I, I badgered Bob into applying <laughs> to uh, <laughs> to the Free Fringe <laughs> Festival which is an organisation uh, the the I always get these letters around the PBH Free Fringe, yes. named after Peter Buckley Hill, the founder. That's yes. how I remember. Um, and they're an organisation that helps get acts to the fringe because it's incredibly costly if you're going to rent a venue in addition to your accommodation and your promotion and yeah, all of that. Yeah, <laughs> So um, they basically will accept submissions, they'll decide whether they think you can put on a good show and they will assign you a venue that's appropriate to your kind of material. Yeah. And you'll get into their um, free program as well, so you're not having to worry too much about the advertising side of things. And they accepted us. Yeah. And then we had to write a show because <laughs> we hadn't thought that far ahead. <laughs> Which, well, I mean, the show is essentially the story of what we love about Last of the Summer Wine and how, what it's meant to us yeah, over it, the it, years. It's, it's like a version of this podcast but but proper but proper you know <laughs> it's got costumes and props and slides <laughs> yeah and, and a show about why last of the summer wine is so great i think mm. and, and things that people might not have realized about last of the summer wine yeah. or possibly dispelling preconceptions that people have about last of the summer wine we go around the audience don't we and, and figure say, out know, what, what they think yeah when, last of the summer wine when, is when we say the phrase last of the summer wine <laughs> like this last of the summer we're wine doing the show again uh what's the first thing that comes into your head and people always say 
tin baths. Tin bath rolling yeah. downhill, old people, wrinkled stockings. And we kind of go through these one by one and talk about them. Um, and then, I guess in the second half of the show, we look at uh, the links between Last the Summer Wine and some of those older generations of, of comic performers, like we mentioned, Joe Gladwin having performed in Music Hall in the 1920s and 30s, and he's on primetime TV. And Bill Owen has been a film actor. Yeah, completely. Who got very close to stardom, but never quite yeah. became the star that he wanted yeah, to be yeah, until yeah. Last of the Summer Wine. I yeah. Think. Um, so this. this, this I was going to call it a last hurrah, but we're talking 30 years of the man's career. That's a hell of a hurrah. Career, yeah. That's a lot of last. <laughs> for some while. And it, didn't, it didn't start as this, but the series did become a legacy project. Yeah. In that people sometimes called it the retirement home for mm. actors and comics of a certain generation. But I think that's a little unfair because they did graft on that show. Yeah. Um, so, you know, sitcom stars, people like Stephen Lewis... Um, became hey. a series regular that was bound to happen hey. <laughs> um, <laughs> June Whitfield yeah Come I'm on. not doing <laughs> June Whitfield <laughs> oh you chicken um, and by the end of June? it you had no that's not June <laughs> by the end of it you've had people like uh, Russ Abbott so yeah. comedians of the 80s yeah becoming part of this this ongoing legacy thing and we explore a little bit of that in the live show as well mm. um, how Last the Summer Wine did provide a link to much earlier generations of comedians, um, which I think was a, a, a lovely and worthwhile and heartwarming thing for it to do at every stage of its. Uh, what am I talking about here? <laughs> a lovely and a heartwarming thing for it to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I leave that in. So, so when the Free Fringe said yes to us and we came up with the show. The um, the venue assigned to us was Bannerman's Bannerman's Bar and Edinburgh's premier punk and rock venue, <laughs> um, which obviously perfect. is perfect. perfect. Um, but actually, it, it genuinely it did turn out right. to be brilliant. It's slightly off the beaten track, but not yeah. too far. Um, so it wasn't crazy busy, but we got plenty of passers by. They were lovely in there as well. I have to say, yeah, the, the staff of Bannermans were great. They were fantastic. Um, as were our fellow performers. Yeah, yeah, were, were totally. lovely. Um, and there was something about sitting in a a, a, a punk and metal venue, dressed up with <laughs> compo and Clegg. Um, and a lot, I mean, you know, people have said to us, haven't they? Oh, you, uh, you, you're acting out. Last the summer wine, and yeah. that's not the show. No, at we all. we made a rod for own backs with those costumes, really. They're no, fun. Yeah, they're, they're fun. Yeah, that's it. They're a bit of fun. It's yeah. it's like you know Doctor Who fans dressing up and yeah, going yeah. to a convention. It's, it's cosplay. Yeah, it's summer wine <laughs> cosplay. Uh, but we've we never at any point um, had any intention of of recreating scenes from Last the Summer Wine uh, or performing as actors on stage. That's not what no, the show is about. No, at all. The, the way I've started to describe it is. It's like going to a, a Last of the Summer Wine viewing party. Yeah. I think, with, with like-minded fans. And yeah. We try to give it that party I'm atmosphere. Two really annoying people. <laughs> there is music yeah. of, a, of a fashion. Yeah, yeah. There, there are games. Yeah. Um, and, of course, there's dressing up. So, yeah, I'd just describe it as a Last of the Summer Wine shindig. Yes. Uh, so, final uh, appearance in Edinburgh at the PBH Free Fringe. Um, 
And I, I think it was the best one that we did was the Friday, the last time that we yeah, did it. It was the best show. We'd actually learned the script by that day. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> now we've forgotten it all again. Yeah. Uh, but sitting in the audience that day was a bloke. You know, you look at somebody and you think, I've met you before and I just couldn't place him. And he came in, he, he did a really cheery hello when he came in. Mm-hmm. God, no, I have. I have met you. All the way through our performance that last day, I think, where have I seen that bloke before? And he came up at the end and he said, you didn't recognise me, did you? (laughs) Yes, I did, but go on, tell me. And he went, would it help if I talked a bit like this? And he was... um, better, better than that. But better, obviously, yeah. Uh, He's a guy called John Hewer, and I'd met him because uh, he was a guest on my radio programme on BBC Tees. I'd actually sat in the studio with him for an hour. Um, And he's a theatre producer, but also an actor himself. And he was uh, producing and uh, performing in a touring version of Steptoe and Son, mm-hmm. uh, playing Harold Steptoe. Um, and I mean, I, you know, we, we didn't have much chance to chat with him on the day. I think. No, no, because after the show, we always had to get it very quickly for the next act and get our tweed That's, off. You've got to get out, haven't <laughs> yeah. you? Yes, and strip off the tweed. Whoa. The sight of Bob's underpants was not uncommon in the back of, <laughs> in back of Bannerman's bar. <laughs> I just got, comp- I got complete, like, lost all of my inhibitions about getting changed actually in the bar because there was no other option. No. Um, so, yeah, we, knew we didn't speak to John that much on the day because he was going off to do a Tommy Cooper show. Yeah, himself. he has he a one man, well. Well, a, t- a two man Tommy Cooper yeah. show because he has his, his pianist. Is that, that's right. Um, but then we uh, we dropped him a, a line um, a couple of weeks later, basically saying, do, do you have any advice? We'd like to do more of this, uh, knowing that he did you know similar touring shows. And bless him, he got straight back to us and said, well, actually, uh, I'd like to produce it. I'd like to book you some dates in and produce them. Yeah, uh, which, which means that Hambledon Productions is yeah. now promoting yeah. some Owino's UK tour. Good God. <laughs> How on earth has this happened? So, yeah, we will be doing the show around the country. Up and uh, down the country, but yeah. mainly Yorkshire. Is that right? We like Yorkshire. It's true. Um, no, we've got a London date as well, haven't we? Mm. Or in Nottingham and Newark. Mm. And... Some of us that we can't mention yet. Yeah, but that's some, true. Some very cool yes. events coming up yeah, as well. Yeah. Not just your standard theatre gigs. And Middlesbrough. Good God, I must mention Middlesbrough. <laughs> my hometown. Um... So yeah, if you get again, if you go to the website summerwinos.co.uk, then the full tour dates are on there, and it would be lovely to see as many of you as possible. Yeah, because that that was one of the things about the the Edinburgh show that was great meeting people yeah. who had read the blog, or in some cases people who had never heard of the blog. Yeah, uh, we met. We were on the street dressed as Compo and Clegg, mm. handing out flyers on the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. And a, an American couple came up to us and said, "Oh, could we have could we have a picture with you? It's our favourite show." Yeah. And they'd come to to Britain, um, specifically to the festival and to visit Homeforth. Yes. But they had no idea about our show. Yeah. And they ended up coming along that day. And they loved it. Yeah, it was great fun. Just to. I was a bit concerned connect. about what they might make of it, but they <laughs> loved it. <laughs> So, yeah, come along. It'd be lovely to see you. Um, go on, then, to finish off, favourite Last of the Summer Wine episode? Uh, it has to be Getting Sam Home. Swine, the, right? <laughs> the first, the first feature-length <laughs> the first feature length episode done as a done as a proper film, yeah. all on film, no laugh track. 
Um, it's a beautiful, darkly comic. Um, it's blinging, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Like, it I'm is. trying to find the words to describe it. There is nothing yeah. else like getting Sam yeah. Holm in terms of British sitcom. Yeah. I think. Um, even the subsequent Last of the Summer Wine films aren't of the same tone. Mm. Um, and I think it encapsulates everything that I do love about those early years of the show. It's 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 dark, but it has a sense of joy to it. Mm. There are some fantastic performances. Uh, it's a chance to see John Comer in his final part, yeah. uh, his final appearance as Sid. Uh, John Comer died shortly afterwards, mm. and he is an absolute highlight of these those early years. Him and Jane Freeman playing Ivy, a brilliant double act. Um, and it was one of those programs that I had seen when I was very young yeah and I had flashes of memory from it and so watching that again was a, a rush of nostalgia as well yeah it's a massive one for me Christmas 1983 getting mm. Sam I watched it on first broadcast and it's for when the DVDs came out so many of my very vivid distinct memories of Last of the Summer Wine that I couldn't place I didn't know which episodes they were from but it transpired they were all in getting <laughs> Sam <laughs> So I love it as well, but seeing as you've chosen it, I'm going to go for Full Steam Behind, which is from Series 5, I think, of Last of the Summer Wine. Could be some slack here, there were 32 <laughs> series. Uh, no, it's uh, Series 5, and it's uh, it's an early-ish Foggy episode, yeah. in which Foggy, uh, well, drags Compo and Clegg across country to see uh, the opening of a steam railway. Mm, and it, it, it should be one of my favourite episodes, because yeah. I, I do love a good steam railway. I know you do, <laughs> but, yeah. But, but Compo and Clegg are so relentlessly horrible to Foggy. I find it really off-putting. <laughs> All the man wants to do is go and look at a train. For once, Foggy is right. It's a really nice way to spend the day. Um, I just love it because A, it's got trains in it, but and, and B, because they're all horrible to each other, which kind of appeals to me. <laughs> uh, but also, uh, it's just got a lovely scene in a railwayman's hut. <laughs> uh, where they're just, in a, it's derelict I like derelict old buildings and they're in a railwayman's hut at the side of the railway line and everything just looks perfect in it so I'm picking full steam behind and one last plug we did go and visit the oh, railway dear. from the episode uh, the Keefley Worth Valley <laughs> Railway yes. um, and we, we because that's the kind of thing we do we, we made a location film about that as well so that's on the blog as well yeah there's a few location hunting films on the blog uh, come and find us summerwinos.co.uk is the website address summerwinos.co.uk on the Facebook on the Facebook and the Twitters yeah just summerwinos yep we're is not that, on Instagram yet but no. at some point I'm sure there's a YouTube channel as well is that just summerwinos yes it is yeah there you go come and say hello it'll be nice to have you along Many thanks to Bob and Andrew. Yes, thank you, boys. And do go and see their show if you're in the area. And as we said, boys, come and see us down in the south. <laughs> Indeed. And an open invitation to them to uh, come back and do something else, of yes. course. Yes. Now, Nick Goodman mm-hmm. is here, flying solo for once. He is, yes. And he's going to look at some forthcoming Doctor Who merchandise. He is. Yes. 
Hello, Lisa and Andrew. Hi, this is Nick here, presenting you with what we might call an unsolicited contribution to Round the Archives. Unsolicited because I don't currently have an agent, and my usual partner in crime, of course, Paul Chandler, isn't here at this precise moment. But I thought I'd, I, I was minded to uh, send you a little uh, thing about two my thoughts on two bits of news in the Doctor Who world. So I've, I've actually, there's, there's one piece of new, bit of news which has broken in the last couple of weeks, uh, which I'd like to give my thoughts on, and a bit of merchandise that's coming out next month. So I thought I'd, I'd sort of lay down my views on it and sort of musings on it. The first is, for, the, for those of you who are uh, not particularly Doctor Who minded, I know there's a lot of Doctor Who fans that listen to RTA, but... Um, the Doctor Who original, the, the classic series, was adapted into book form by the by Target Books in the 70s, 80s and a little bit of the 90s. Now, most of them were done. I think eventually it turned into Virgin Books and did some of the stories from the 60s that weren't done at that point. But for years, the four stories uh, weren't able to be done. Two by Douglas Adams because... Obviously, the best-selling author, and in his own words, uh, it was a bit embarrassing, you know, because uh, the fees that Target Books and presumably Virgin Two were uh, able to offer him weren't anything like the the kind of chunk that he was used to as best-selling author. And an agreement uh, with the two eighties Dalek stories, Resurrection of the Daleks and Revelation of the Daleks, Eric Sayward and the books and the estate of Terry Nation, of course, created the Daleks, couldn't be agreed. Now, in the last few years, in I think in the last three or so years, a writer called James Goss has very successfully novelised the two Douglas Adams related story, although I always feel guilty saying City Death's a Douglas Adams story, because strictly speaking it isn't, because there was a joint effort and the original story line came from David Fisher, but I digress. They were very successfully novelised by James Goss, two excellent adaptions, especially City and so that was exciting when that came out and it's just been announced that the two Eric Sayward Dalek stories will be coming out by BBC Books thus completing the whole range of the classic novelizations. Now I've been a Doctor Who fan for 45 years and in that time I've voiced opinions on things, I've formed opinions on things, some some things I'm cantankerously old to get about, some I'm indifferent, and others I'm a doughy-eyed fanboy. And along with missing episodes, I, uh, it's and certain other things, the, the novelisations of the original series, and I must admit, you know, they've done some of the, the new Who's, and I, I applaud that, I hope they do some more. You know, we're carrying on the torch, as it were. The target range, or the, you know, as it is BBC Books range now, uh, it's something I've felt rather excited about because it completes the, the whole run of them. Quite what deal they brokered to get this done after so many years of failure, I don't know. But it is, it is going to be novelised by the original author, Eric Saywood, and they're out respectively. Resurrection's out in July and Revelation's out in November. Now, these are two... Uh, with Daleks, I mean, anybody who knows... It's funny that I should get so excited about the Daleks because I'm usually a little bit cynical about them. I think they've had some great stories done for them in the past. Evil of the Daleks, Genesis of the Daleks, and my own favourite... Day of the Daleks, but I've I've always felt I've always felt a little bit irritated by the show's dependence on them. And I do feel that they're they're, they're the biggest hangers-on of all time. And I 
<laughs> so it's sort of, oh dear, they're, they're, they're sort of like an auntie that just won't die and has just kind of been so dominant. But the, these two, they're, they're pretty decent stories. They're both written with a, a great deal of action and very dark and very violent stories, which sort of dark and violent was very much the, the, the watchwords of the 80s in many respects. Resurrection is a shoot 'em up slam-bang action story with lots of military might flexing its muscles and more on-screen deaths, I believe, than Natural Born Killers, which somebody worked out in Doctor Who magazine once. But I always think, you know, with these people that come on and get mangled and melted and shot and for our own entertainment, it is going to be nice to actually meet the people and get to know the people who we casually saw killed 34 or 35 years ago and see what was going in the original author's head. I'm a great believer in the original author novelising things. And also, Revelation of the Daleks, it's rather more surreal. It's kind of lots of very comically grotesque characters like Jebel and uh, played by the recently belated Clive Swift very very well too and uh, that's that's a slightly better story because it's got a little bit more to offer it's got that extra layer and even though I'm I've never been a great fan of the 45 minute episodes uh, there are times you know I've I've a little bit old school about that but but yeah uh, so there is an even richer vein of, uh, and you know, sort of getting to know the the world behind. It's all about funerals and death and everything. And it was based on the loved ones, which was an Evelyn War book, which I've read. I read on read it on holiday a few years ago. And if you if you folks out there think Revelation of the Daleks is quite dark, then I suggest you read it because I can see why. Eric Sayward liked it. It was good. But anyway, I digress. With those coming out, obviously, fills a gap, absolutely marvellous, break out the champagne. But what fascinates me is what kind of style Eric will be writing it in, because we've seen several examples of Eric Sayward in prose. His original book of the... Well, the, he his original story, should I say, The Visitation, this is his first Doctor Who story. Apart from a scene where it's seen from the point of view of a fox, it's a fairly fairly straightforward adaption and you know ends quite abruptly I think the the target page count was quite stringent in those days following on from that he did the twin dilemma which wasn't his story but he script edited the original and he he adopted a very different style a sort of quasi Douglas Adamsy zany kind of warped kind of humory bit which ah, it's slowly grown on me over the years but I've always thought didn't quite work he didn't quite pull off that kind of style I've never actually read Slipback which is his radio Doctor Who but I believe it's written in the same vein which put me off buying it really I guess however Attack of the Cybermen which also wasn't his story allegedly and he did a super job on that and the story the characters really come to life and what's was a slightly kind of sort of shoot again a, a kind of action story it comes to life very nicely on the page so what sort of Eric are we going to get when these books come out will it be a, an, a visitation Eric or a twin dilemma Eric or will it be an attack of the Cybermen Eric or will it be a, an Eric that's 30 years older and wiser and will give us something new and sensational I have to say as a postscript David Fisher who wrote some of the Tom Baker stories was invited by the now defunct audio go to novelise his stories uh, although they were already novelised by Terence Dix he went back and did his own adaptions and I have to say I really do recommend them to anyone they are superb away from the target page count he really 
is given time to breathe and really brings his two 70s stories, that is Stones of Blood and Androids of Tara, to life and you really get to know the characters and a lot of unanswered questions from the originals are answered. So I, I really do think this is quite an exciting sort of thing to do. So, which just goes to show the sort of things that turn me on. But as a post-postscript, Toby Hado, in one of his excellent podcast interviews, interviewed the late Anthony Reid, before he was late, of course, and in which he revealed that he had done an adaption of his story, The Horns of Nymon, for Audio Go, which then went defunct, and then poor old Anthony died. So I hope somewhere, if his estate his estate's willing, someone will dig it out. The, the, whoever does, does the novelisation that releases these days, I don't know who it is, uh, hopefully will dig it out and put it out, and because that's something I really like to hear. It's a bit of a, it's a story that people still look down their noses at but I would absolutely love to see it done by its original author and let's hope so anyway no it's a post 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 script that's probably too many posts but never mind but uh, covers now I'm a bit snobby about covers I have to say I will admit this so I shall stick my hand up to it I believe Quentin Blake is ruining Roald Dahl I, I just think he's he's a very very talented cartoonist but he's just not right for it so that's just giving you an example of my snobbery but with the two Douglas Adams related Doctor Who books I really didn't like the covers I, I thought they were too they were very Douglas Adams but they weren't terribly Doctor Who so I, I was the and, and they, they were a downer on uh, otherwise two excellent books. And also, I, you know, as I say, they retargeted, uh, they retargeted, recovered the City of Death with a more Chris Achilles esque, that's, uh, that's, don't want to say that if you had a few gins, uh, cover with the target, which appeased sad people like myself. But I have to say, with these two, with the re- resurrection and revelation of the Daleks, respectively, they don't tell you much about the story because it's just a Dalek in this fancy framework of, of, of piping. But they are, they do have a certain elegance to them, so I will abate my grizzlings on this occasion. So, um, so they do, they do look not look nice. So, uh, even though there's no sort of all the characters, there's no Davros, there's no Lytton, there's no Rodney Pugh's or whatever. But no, I so uh, yes, they are going to look a little bit better on the. <laughs> that is me definitely done for Revelation and Resurrection. My second thing I want to talk about is the Macro Terror. Macro Terror for the Uninitiated was the f- fourth, no, fifth um, Patrick Troughton's. I'll just go and do my calculation. Yeah, fifth Doctor Who pa- Patrick Troughton's story from 1967. It was wiped shortly afterwards and has been missing ever since. Now, recently, in recent times, they've been putting out the, the animation of these sto- these missing stories, which I'm in support of. I, I, it's a great way to rediscover the stories. Obviously, I'm still hoping that Phil Morris, who is the great uh, missing episode hunter of all series, not just Doctor Who, will discover something. I enjoyed his little discovery of new, a rediscovered uh, Morecambe Wise at Christmas. That was nice. Uh, but for the time being, we've, we have Macro Terror. Now, people will know that I, you know, I'm kind of keen on missing episodes. But I have to say that Macro Terror has always been one of my least favourite of the ones that are missing. I, yeah, I mean, uh, 
the thing is, I always think of the Patrick Troughton's first season as a bit like a, a donkey ride at this uh, on the sea front at the end of a long summer day. It's very charming and ends gloriously, but it's a bit of a bumpy ride and there's a fair amount of poo along the way. And I have to say, having, you know, experienced Mac Terror through the books many times and the soundtrack even more times, I have to say there's something about it that just doesn't grab me. I've, I've always felt that Ian Stuart Black's The Wells that he creates and the characters it creates are a bit contrived and three-dimensional and a little bit sort of aim too much at the kids that's just, maybe that's just me but I just don't think when you compare to someone like David Whittaker who was writing for the show at the time who brought even the smallest of characters really to life in his writing having said that I applaud Microterra and I shall be buying it and watching it and I'm rather hoping that it will you know it will make me change my ways and see you know I'll ex- get something out, new out of the of the show by actually seeing the visuals with the soundtrack albeit on you know sort of animated so I'm looking forward to that very much so yeah as maybe not as much as sort of if they animated the remaining episodes of faceless ones or whatever but but anyway yes yeah, so that's Magra Terra out next month and out in March should I say and looking forward to that one very much and I even prepared a slot <laughs> on my shelf for it anyway that's my musings i hope you enjoyed that and i hope you can use some of it and um as i say keep up the good work Thank you very much to Mr. Nick. Yes, thank you, Nick. Um, that was a totally unsolicited article. It just, you know, popped into the inbox oh, one we're, day. We're, I'm very open to unsolicited yes, things, yes. you know. So if anybody else has anything yes. they want to say... Please do, you know, consider. Yes, Nick will be back very soon. Yes, with, with, with Paul. the Shayeti. Yes, indeed. Mm. Um, just want to say thank you to everyone for listening again. Yes, um, yes. There's just one more article to come, which won't, won't be by us. No. But I just wanted no. to say, that I'm recording this on the last day of February, mm-hmm. and February has seen us notch up by far our most successful month. Yes, indeed. With, as of this morning, over 550 listens. Yes. Wow. Thank you so much for listening. Which is astonishing. And if you're listening for the first time, welcome, and um, please do consider our back catalogue. Indeed. Episode 34. Yes. Um, is already very well planned. It is. We know pretty much what we're doing. Yeah. Mm. So all systems go at the moment. Yes. Hurrah. Mm. Anyway, uh, for our final piece, mm-hmm. we welcome back the Exton Moss experiment. Yes. Who are? Uh, Simon Exton and Ken Moss. And they're going to look at? MacGyver. MacGyver. The Exton Moss experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Hello everyone, and uh, hello to listeners of Round the Archives. This is a guest podcast appearance from the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And I know the Round the Archive guys for... I've known them for quite a lot of years. Andy and I used to work in a chemistry lab back in the 80s in Poole in Dorset. And while we were working there, there was a TV programme that used to be on a Saturday evening called MacGyver, an American programme um, about a secret agent who used to make stuff out of things that he found lying around. And there was almost always some chemistry in the, uh, in the episode. And being 
teenage lads and working in a chemistry lab and really rather enjoying the, uh, the show. What we used to do on a Monday morning after we'd all seen it on the, the Saturday was recre- try to recreate what MacGyver had done a couple of days beforehand and it generally worked pretty well. Now I've not seen any MacGyver in, in years. Uh, it stars Richard Dean Anderson who went on to do um, very well in Stargate. And I think this was his big, big break, first lead role. It's really entertaining. Ken, you'd not seen it before. I've not you? seen a single one. I've, I've heard of it many times. Yeah. And in fact, the, bizarrely, the, the one reference that I know about MacGyver is actually from a Simpsons episode in, uh, I think it's at the wedding of Selma and Sideshow Bob. There's a massive segue there. But no, so I haven't seen it. I don't know anything about the premise apart from what you've just said. So I think the easiest thing is just to dive straight in. Well, it's the pilot episode. It's the pilot episode we're going to watch from 1985. Which is the best place to start. So without further ado, Ron VT. Colour me impressed. I very, very much enjoyed that. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Starts off with a, a little scene setting thing and a pre-credit sequence, which he almost always had from what I remember. And he rescues a downed American pilot from somewhere in Asia and gets back some essential microchip. Or no, there wasn't anything particularly micro about the technology. Was Not there. at all. No. Um, so a uh, big chunk of circuit board from this missile that they didn't want, whichever this um, foreign government was to get hold of. And then there are the the credits with the catchy theme tune, and then it goes straight into the episode. And the premise is that there's there's a research foundation that has an underground headquarters and laboratory, and there's a big explosion there. Explosion ruptures a sulfuric acid tank, which is gradually dripping through the the bedrock, chewing its way through as it goes, and it's going to hit an underground river that will vent into the Rio Grande, I think they said, which will poison poison the water water supply supply. for three states or something. It's quite entertaining. They they do things like uh, plugging the gap in the sulfuric acid tank with chocolate so that the sugar reacts with it, which is actually exactly what would happen. And whoever they had as a chemistry advisor did a pretty good job less convinced about the tiny, tiny bit of metallic sodium being used as a big enough explosion to blow, blow up a wall, but <laughs> well, we'll let that one slide. This and is a first for us, because we've never done a piece of American television before. It's all been British. British or Irish? Oh, yes, or Irish. Podge and Rodge, yeah. for those who... I asked you fairly early on, is this a Glen A. Larson? Because it, it feel, it's very much of yeah, that it, ilk. It isn't. It's actually... Henry Winkler. So this was executive producer of the Fonz. The theme tune, again, it's got one of those annoyingly catchy theme tunes. That's going to be in my head for days. Earworm. Brilliant stuff. He's impossibly handsome, and as predicted, within about 30 seconds of meeting 
oh look, the most attractive woman on the site happens to end up being his uh, a companion assistant tag along for the episode, and within forty seconds they're kissing. What a surprise! A lot of gratuitous upskirt shots. Oh yes, there there were, and um, she she had to do a lot of hoiking her skirt up to climb over walls and things. So there's. As you've pointed out, though, the science is reasonably robust throughout it. There are the occasional artistic license blips, yeah. but... And there's actually nothing wrong with the sodium reaction they do. They just don't use anywhere near enough of mm. it. With this being the pilot episode, I'm assuming like most pilot episodes, they threw a load of money at it, and they're not quite at that level for the rest of the series. I can't remember, because I don't think I've seen this since about 1992. It's very precise. That's when it finished. Fair enough. I, I was still working in the uh, the chemistry lab at that point. So, yeah, I know exactly. It, it ran 85 to 92. I, I left that lab in 93. So, yes, I know when I last saw. That, that, that's a reasonable explanation. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that one. Um, I don't remember seeing it on any, any repeats or anything. So, although it, it's not impossible. The occasional episode will have slipped in. So I can't really remember just how good the production values carry on. Certainly that. The stories continue to be very entertaining. I'm just amazed I've never seen one. That is exactly the sort of thing that I would have been watching around that time. There's Knight Rider, Street Hawk, Airwolf, you know, Battlestar Galactica. So all the sort of action series yeah, that, yeah, that sailed was, over the pond, I was I was into, so pass. And it was Saturday evening, it's an early Saturday evening, so six o'clock or something. I can imagine this being on... Uh, either just before or just after Child's Play with Michael Aspel. I seem to remember in those days, Knight Rider and then Child's Play. Don't know what that is. Oh, that, that's one for you to look up. We won't be doing that on a podcast. Basically, kids say the darndest things. Sort oh, of thing. okay. yeah. yeah. With I, Michael Aspel. Yeah, I can live without that. But it, it's... Uh, you've said you're going to leave me the DVD, and I'm yeah. very glad, because that's... that's uh, I have a week working at home looming, so that's got all the hallmarks of being my lunchtime. Ah, working. It, it is working. Unfortunately, uh, it's January, and as ever, the inland revenue is coming and knocking at the end of it, and I haven't finished my accounts yet, so right. it'll provide welcome relief from the tedium of sums. Yeah, that's grand. Yeah, it, it, it's an American action thing. You don't actually need a massive amount of thought behind it. The technology, by today's standards, is enormous and clunky and really entertaining they they give him a, a two-way radio which is oh, it's about the size of a cigarette packet he, he loses it halfway yeah. through but there are some ingenious get outs of problems with everyday objects which i thought was good I, yeah. and and it does carry on with, like that and it, so when he does his chemistry stuff there's one I, one thing i remember where he needed some aluminium so he finds a, somebody's sports bike and turns that into aluminium because it would have an aluminium mm. frame so he <laughs> drops up some poor bloke's sports bike to get his aluminium <laughs> got to give a, a shout out for who alumni Doctor Who alumni Olaf Pooley yes Professor Stahlman who pops up looking considerably older considering it's only I mean this would only be what 15 years he looks a lot older than 15 years have passed between that and Inferno yeah it's kind of Inferno-ish in that there's it's underground and there's goo leaking a out leak, of something. A leak, yes. It's a little bit of a stretch, but... But we're Doctor Who fans and we'll crowbar any old stretch into uh, anything. Absolutely. And it, and it's quite nice that he's a... Uh, MacGyver is a, um, a lead sort of secret agent type who doesn't use guns. I, th- I think when I was reading up on it, this is the only episode where he uses a gun. And I don't think in the entire run of the series he actually kills anybody. 
He doesn't actually. He doesn't actually use the gun. He ties it to a tree with a stick and a bit of string. No, when he's when he's running away before they're about to jump oh, off yes. that. Oh yeah. He's about to jump off that cliff with the pilot that he's just mm-hmm. rescued. Then he does fire back at the. Um, yeah. And that pilot, by the way, must have a grip of steel because he just, without really much warning, it's uh, ah, I made a rocket launcher. Hang on, bang! That that's <laughs> it gives him about. of a second to warn him that they're going to jump off the cliff without any sort of safety attachment to each other whatsoever. It's just, hang on. And you never actually see the pilot again. No, you don't. I mean, it's assumed that he survived, but... uh... But yes, there could be pilot jam. (laughs) (laughs) It's annoying me, though, where MacGyver's mate, the guy who lands in the helicopter and gives him his mission, I've seen him somewhere before... I have looked on IMDb and I don't recognise any of his credits on IMDb. There's a couple of things I recognise him for because he was in Kingdom Hospital, which I love. Um, but it, that's really quite obscure. I try not to be too surprised by that. I, I'm going to say, as with a lot of the things that you have watched, they are so obscure, I've never even heard of them. I have said before on several of our own podcasts that Simon's knowledge of Archive TV eclipses my own by several country miles. So I come to these things just basking in the glory of whatever Simon pulls out of his DVD case this week. Isn't sometimes not? Corridor people. <clears throat> you, ne- you need to see more of the Corridor people to really appreciate it. We'll watch all the episodes sometime. Thankfully there are only four of them. Well, that means we need to watch them twice. So that's, that's our brief summing up of uh, the pilot episode of MacGyver. I can recommend it. I would definitely recommend that. I was a little, uh, very, slightly dubious when we uh, were talking about doing this, and I was discussing it with Lisa and Andy because memory cheats. And oh, this memory is does. This yes. is something that I watched as a teenager and really enjoyed it. And I was thinking, well, actually, coming to it quite a number of decades later, am I still going to be keen? And it was still very entertaining. There are a couple of things which we do on our own podcast, which it would seem churlish not to. Not to let listeners of Lisa and Andy's podcast into. Uh, first and foremost, we always do a gin review. And as per usual with these recording sessions, we're currently drinking gin. We are, and we're drinking a particularly nice gin. What have we got for tonight? We have Curio, which is a Cornish gin, and it's made with samphire, which gives it that nice little salty edge to it. It is absolutely gorgeous. We rate our gins out on the Bernard scale. In honour of Mr Quatermass. Professor Quatermass. Professor Quatermass. And this is a solid five out of five for me. No doubt about it at all. I wouldn't go that far. It's a very nice gin, a very, a very nice gin. Uh... Generally speaking, we drink it with Fever Tree Tonics, which is a wonderful tonic water. I don't know why it's so much better than most of the others, but it is. Mm-hmm. There, there are others. There's Fentiment and there's, uh, there's a London one. I still like Schweppes. I'm not actually that fussed on Fever Tree. I'll drink it, don't get me wrong. You'll, you'll force it down. I'm hovering between three and four. It is a very nice one. I think... Don't give me that look. I'm going to give it a four. I'll give it a four. It's not quite in my five brackets, but it is... The same as you gave Star of Bombay. I didn't give Star of Bombay four. Didn't you? No. No. It got a solid three. Oh, I gave it a four. Yeah. This is harking back to an earlier session this afternoon. We had Star of Bombay, which is, as we described it, a posh Bombay sapphire. Yeah, which I can't really tell the difference between Um, that and Bombay sapphire. We couldn't tell a blind bit of difference Bombay, Star of Bombay a good solid three but it's it's nowadays it's it's very much in the very good but there are better ones available category 
The other section that we, uh, it's a, a brand new section that we've started doing this recording session, is the Black Archive. This is basically our opportunity to pick a missing piece of television from the archives and decide which one we would like to resurrect if it wasn't lost. I'm going to go with the Doctor Who, what a surprise. And I think this time it's going to be the Daleks Master Plan. Because I listen to that every Christmas, and I have done since it was first released on CD. I love Daleks Master Plan. It's a big sprawling thing which it's a series of set pieces. I mean, it's not. It's one very loosely jointed story. That uh, a bit like the war game. It's the beginning and the end. Yeah. The middle is a movable feast. But I do love Daleks Master Plan, so that will be mine. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I, I like Dalek Master Plan. I would love to see any Doctor Who episode come back. If I were going for a uh, Hartnell, I think it would be the Savages. You have mentioned this Maybe. before. Yep. Um, last time I was asked the question, I said the Savages, and in the intervening four hours, my, my answer hasn't changed. It's a really nice, underrated story. Um, the telly snaps look, some of them look absolutely lovely. It's nice to have a story where nobody dies. Yes. It's the only Hartnell science fiction that doesn't have any episodes. You are full of interesting trivia. You come out with stuff. The, the Henry Winkler thing, I'm still just one of those fascinating little snippets that I can now look at MacGyver and think, the Fonz produced that. And now The Smugglers is the only Hartnell sci-fi with no episodes. The Savages. It's enjoying the gin. The gin. Oh, I'm enjoying the gin immensely. It's um, doing. It's working a treat. That's a bit of a segue because I wasn't actually going to um, talk about a Doctor Who art for my contribution to this particular Black Archive. Well, you've already you've already resurrected the smugglers earlier this afternoon. So, what would be your one for this? Or Black even Arch- the savages. <laughs> right. Shut up. Curio gin, ladies and gentlemen. Curio gin. It works a treat. What it would you resurrect? You mix up your Hartnells. What would you resurrect? I would resurrect a Nigel Neal play called The Road. Okay, tell me more about um, it. The BBC have actually already done this to a certain extent because an audio version of it was released last, I think it was last Halloween. It's an incredibly clever play. Um, it's set in, I think, the mid-18th century and it's an investigation into reports of ghosts in a um, nearby wood and there's a scientist and some sort of some flavor of theologian who are arguing about the existence of ghosts and whether there's any scientific validity whether we should be looking in terms of scientific validity Um, and then at the end of the story you get to hear the ghosts and it's very clear from what you hear that it's a group of modern people trapped on a, um, a motorway just as a nuclear bomb hits. More nuclear fun. Yeah. We've just done an episode on radiation a few months ago. Few you're, months. St- you're still recovering, aren't you? Yes, we, we did some, uh, had a, a lovely evening's viewing of uh, various radiation-themed television culminating with threads. If anybody is interested in listening to that podcast, it's on our website. Uh, that is a grim fest, but also one of the best pieces of TV that I have ever seen. With that, I think before we segue too much, we should let Andy and Lisa get back to their own podcast. But thank you very much for listening. If you're interested in hearing more from us, we are on Facebook, The Exton Moss Experiment. We're on Twitter at, at Exton Moss and Instagram at, at Exton Moss. And we also have a blog spot with news and all the links to our archive recordings.
So, thank you very much, everyone. We shall pass you back to the very capable hands of Andy and Lisa. Thank you for giving us a plug, guys, and we'll speak to you soon. Yes, enjoy listening. That was episode 33 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Tim Worthington, Martin Holmes, Bob Fisher, Andrew T. Smith, Nick Goodman, Simon Exton and Ken Moss. These are getting longer. <laughs> On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for Last of the Summer Wine, Getting Sam Home, was by Roy Clark. And the producer was Alan J.W. Bell. I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 33 of Around the Archives. Yeah, let's do that again. Hello. Hello. I'm Andrew. I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 33 of Around the Archives. Oh, uh, Rose Cat's just poking her head out of the curtains now. Yeah, she's wondering what we're c- doing. Because we've started speaking. Um, hello, everyone. Hello. Right. Uh, lots to do again. Yes. So let's not faff. No. So first of all, we're we're pleased to be we're pleased to be welcomed. Oh dear, this isn't working today, is it? <laughs> right, let's start again.